You're listening. You're listening to a University of Kentucky. University of Kentucky. College of Arts and Sciences podcast. What do Wida Michael, Nelson Mandela, and food have in common? In this first installment of the Nelson Mandela talk series, Wida Michael, local chef and restaurant owner, speaks about her own commitment to building community. In this podcast, Wida Michael and Melinda Price, director of the African American and Africana Studies program, discuss Michael's efforts to maintain cultural identity, along with the importance of names and the values of diversity. My name is Melinda Price and I'm the director of the African American and Africana Studies program here at the University of Kentucky and we would like to welcome you to the first of what we hope will become actually a yearly lecture on building and sustaining community that brings to the university leaders from outside of the academy to discuss ways in which we all think about community how to build community and the role of other institutions in the local community. So anyway, I have an introduction of WIDA and then I'm going to talk a little bit about it. I have a whole introduction. Do you want to hear it? Okay. So I'm, I'm Wida, shocked and stunned, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so Wida, uh, she grew up cooking with her mother and grandmother. I had my student do a, a dossier on you and another speaker I have to introduce in two weeks. So I have all these things from her, so if they're not true. I'll pipe right up. Exactly, so Wida grew up cooking with her mother and grandmother, and after graduating from the University of Kentucky, she moved to New York City, where she graduated from the Culinary Institute of the Arts, but her interests in our heart drew her back home to Kentucky. After the culmination of many years of hard work, it led to the opening of her first restaurant in 2001, the Holly Hill Inn in Midway, and she has now added the Wallace Station Deli, the Windy Corner Market, the Midway School Bakery, and Smithtown Seafood. Weed is also chef in residence at the Woodford Reserve Distillery. Weed's food is marked by her commitment to locally grown ingredients and supporting local agriculture. One estimate says her restaurants have purchased over $1 million in Kentucky-grown meats, dairy products, fruits and vegetables over the last 11 years. Wida was a James Beard Foundation Award nominee, aren't you fancy, as best (laughs) chef in the Southeast and has been featured in many publications. But having talked with her some before this, I would say she's just as proud to be a member of Slow Food USA and the Congregational Coordinator of Kids in the Kitchen at the Midway Christian Church and a board member of the Pritchard Committee for Academic Excellence. As a pillar of the local foods movement in Lexington, I could go on and on with the good works with which Wida Michael has been associated. She is committed to the preservation of craft, culture, and the food arts that make up this great region. I'd already approached Wida about coming to campus to talk about her particular blend of entrepreneurship and community building before Madipa, as Nelson Mandela was called by those who held him in high esteem, died. But after his death, we decided, and mostly by we, I mean me, decided to name this event after him and his commitment to community and the lesson he gave us of constant engagement and work to create a society that was just, humane, and equitable. So I want to thank Wida for joining us in this conversation. So let's give her a round of applause. (laughs) So 
So my first question, so then last night, I, I, you know, I was working on this script, and my instinct, actually, is to script everything. <laughs> but then I thought, that's inappropriate. But I had already written this question. So okay. after this very formal question, then we'll just sort of talk for a while. And then yeah. we will invite questions from the people in the audience to join us in the conversation, if that's OK. Yes. OK. So Madiba was Nelson Mandela's family name. His given name, he was given the name Nelson when he entered school as a child. And this term of reference, Madiba, was adopted by Mandela when he left prison after serving 27 years in, in prison as part of his lifelong struggle against apartheid and global injustice. So one scholar suggested that Mandela used this name, Madiba, to reclaim his Africanness and to downplay the Nelson part, which was really a legacy of South Africa's colonial past and the colonialism that unfortunately shackled much of Africa for a long time. So I would like to begin our discussion with a discussion we began having the other day when we met to talk about the discussion of naming, because yeah. I know that names are important to you. So can you tell us a little bit about how you came to the names of the restaurants that you have sure. and, and the importance of those names? I said to Melinda, I never in my life dreamed I would somehow be linked to Nelson Mandela. And, um, yeah, I mean, when she told me what she was naming the lecture series, I wanted to back out because I'm like, what, are you crazy? She actually sent me an email in all caps, which I, <laughs> I was like, I was I like, was like I'm being shouted at by a renowned <laughs> <No>. chef, <laughs> Michael, but uh, it was good. Yeah, so I'm humbled. I mean, I also feel like my career is at a turning point and it's changing what I do and how it influences people and how it is influences my own life changes and is changing but we can talk about that but to the subject of names names are very important to us and the main reason it's important in our little family of restaurants is we want to protect place so with our naming we started out with the Holly Hill Inn in 2000 and you know, I have to recognize Roger Solt as our business partner here on the front row. Roger was the debate coach here at the University of Kentucky for 30 years, and he was my debate coach here, and we won the national debate championship in 1986. <laughs> <laughs> I have to slip that in there. I mentioned Roger because, you know, without him, this group would not be possible, this group of restaurants that we have. So in 2000, we bought the Holly Hill Inn, and we toyed with the idea of changing it. I'm like, what are we going to call it? Shea You know? <laughs> I mean, it's a place. It was started in 1979. It was named by the original owners, Holly Hill Inn, so we thought we would perpetuate that. And it was really important to the family that we bought the house from that it stay open to the public. They could have sold it as a private home when it was time to sell, but they wanted to sell it to some people who would keep it open as a restaurant. And so that was very important. Wallace Station is actually was the post office and the heart of what was Wallace, Kentucky, which was a small African-American sort of settlement there on Frankfort Pike. And those little towns exist all around Midway. So there's Zion Hill, mm -hmm. there's, you know, there's these little pockets of African-American neighborhoods that are in the rural community, and Wallace was that way. And that store was bought by a family who would not serve black people at one point when they were operating. And we didn't know this. And then we rented the place, opened up Wallace Station, Terrible business idea until recently. <laughs> but, and then the population, our neighbors were started telling us these stories. As shortly after we opened Wall Station, which is 11 years old this year. 
But it always was called Wallace Station. It always was Wallace, Kentucky. It had the short period by another name. But it was originally, there was a postmark that stamped your envelope, Wallace Station. And that's where there was a mining town there. And um, it, it was really neat. So we wanted to save that name. Windy Corner used to be a corner store there called Windy Corner. And that's why we wanted it. So we're, we're, we're just trying to protect place. And Smithtown Seafood is in the neighborhood of Smithtown, which I felt like, I think all of us who are affiliated with the bread box felt like that name was suggested to me by Brady Barlow. And um, it stuck. It kept ringing in my ear. And because when I was a kid, a lot of my friends lived in Praltown. We talked about that. And I don't want our neighborhood areas to disappear. I want to protect that cultural history and move it forward. I don't want to protect it in a restrictive way. So those names are important to me, and I try to let the place name itself. And usually it's already named, and we just kind of stick with it. <laughs> so, so one of the things that, that I think is, is interesting and why I thought we would have this conversation, like I saw you and it hit me. Well, I saw you interview Ruth Reichel. And that was great. And I was like, Jeannie's another stage. She's great. Like, you were hilarious. So I thought you would be good at it. That's the first thing. And then the other thing I thought immediately was that I'm a person, an African-American person, who's very interested in the whole local foods mm -hmm. movement. But there tends to be, when I go into these spaces, not as many African-Americans present. And one of the things that I found interesting about all of your restaurants, which I've been to now many, many times, and we'll go to many, many more times. I think this is what I said to you, that I love yeah. your food, but I love the diversity of your employees as well. And it's nice to go into these spaces and see people reflective of the community. And one of the things that I also think I said to you is that that can't be without some thought. And you said, actually, it started out as not being very thoughtful, but now it is. Can you talk a little bit about that? Originally, I think when I first started in business, I just wanted to be a hot shit chef. <laughs> There's still a little part of me that feels that way. And I didn't really think I had any responsibility to young people or impact on anyone that was outside of, you know, my gourmet purview when I opened the Holly Hill Inn. Mm -hmm. But one thing that has struck me since chef school is it is really, really, really difficult to hire black chefs. Yeah. They don't exist. They do exist, but yeah. there's not many of them. No. I mean, we just we also just have, happen to have the good fortune in and around Woodford County to have a lot of great employees. Mm -hmm. And so in, in some ways, I was just hiring good people mm -hmm. that happen to be black, yeah. right, at first. Yes. Jackie, Shanessa, and we have a Julie, and we have a group of them at Holly mm -hmm. Hill Inn. Yes. That a group of them, a group yeah. of black yeah. employees. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it's not, you know, having eaten in a lot of places, not just in Kentucky, but around the country, you know, it's not, it, it go, does not go without notice when you see an entire front of house. Uh, of black women. If, I, if it were me, black women would be everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> they would be, you know, populating many, yeah, many Yeah, but spaces, you know, but like, they're, the black waiter yeah. persona is not a good one yeah. in this community. Yeah. I mean, people, don't, oh, yeah. they get upset about that, too. Yes. But not black women. The black women didn't have that same role, mm -hmm. you know, of, and one thing that really struck me, too, early on, yeah. which we didn't talk about was, but I've been thinking. Yes. You provoked me to thought after our last conversation is, I worked for a year for Harriet Dupree, Dupree Catering. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of Harriet's business is this really high-end private horse farm chef. And you go into these households, and usually I would go with two black waiters who I adored, who taught me everything, mm -hmm. and Frida Raglan, who 
taught me an incredible amount about Southern cooking. She's mm -hmm. an African-American woman, lives in Midway. Mm -hmm. But she and I started to cook together mm -hmm. in Lexington. And Frida actually is one of the key people who told me Holly Hill Inn was for sale mm -hmm. and that I should do it. Once it was for sale, that I should really do it. But I started realizing that I wanted to, first of all, I just wanted to have more black friends. <laughs> I f sometimes feel as, uh, I've, and I told you this, yep. I wanted Tell to them. So we had a previous conversation in preparation for this, so we'll keep referencing it. We, uh, yeah. A big part of, um, when I was in elementary school, I had a lot of black friends. I went to Maxwell Elementary. It wasn't a um, magnet school at that time. It was a very diverse school. We had girls club, and it was very, we had, we had a lot of friends. I mean, we just, we didn't, race was not really part of our construct. And then the second that I started Morton Junior High School, it was like, you know, Moses parting the Red Sea. And I think from that time until I graduated from the University of Kentucky, I cannot remember a single black person in one of my classes. And every you, time you say that, it, it just strikes me. It as was almost incredible. But I'm sure that it happens even now with students here at the University of Kentucky. Uh, but the more, every time you say it, the sort of profundity of what that means. It's crazy. Yeah. And the same thing was true at the Culinary Institute of America. Mm -hmm. They probably only had three or four black students mm -hmm. there. And I met this great guy named Teddy Osorio um, cooking in Manhattan. And a lot of them are cooking in Man A lot of black African-American mm -hmm. chefs are cooking in, in ur intensely urban areas yeah. like Chicago, New York. Houston, but I can think of. I was before. really privileged to meet this gentleman named Mark Smith. And Mark passed away last year. And he had been working at the Holiday Inn in Lexington for a long time. And he decided to go back to school to Sullivan to get his culinary degree. It was his longtime dream. And he started working at Windy Corner as a student. And he was, he, you know, a little bit older than me, so mm -hmm. my age, and just really gifted with food. And also with being sort of an authority figure, mm -hmm. which you can't really train anybody to do. Yeah. They have to be able to sort of be a leader, and then I can guide them. But if you have no leadership skill, you're not going to be a good manager. You can't be trained into it. You, you can be told steps to take, but I'm really looking for certain personality types when I do that. And he was the one who really said we had a role to play. And in part, why I felt so strongly about doing Smithtown Seafood and going into the bread box. Part of it was the people that own the bread box. Um, and how great they are to their community and following their lead in how they've tried to develop the community around the development of that building yeah. and their their openness to me to coming into doing that and there's also a nonprofit there called food chain that i'm on the board of and ben and becker are here tonight but um that that nonprofit um is really in many many ways how i see my life's work unfolding mm -hmm. um for the for our community, not just for Smithtown as a neighborhood, but for the Lexington community. And the only thing that happened at Smithtown that's different is we were in an internal, we were in an urban area, so we have the opportunity to hire a lot of African-American young people that live in that neighborhood who need jobs. 
and not all of them have worked out. We've fired a lot of them. <laughs> I have to tell you. There we, are some very adorable girls who oh, seem to be cycling through. Yeah. They're super cute. But. You know, I figure it's okay. You can come in. You may not yeah. make it. You know, we, we don't have a um, punitive approach mm -hmm. to termination. <laughs> and by that I mean it's like, you know, people's <laughs> maturity levels change. That's right. That's right. And we will still continue to hire all kinds of people who work in that, who live in that neighborhood, and that's that's part of one reason, and, and people who don't, but mm -hmm. the idea is to bring disparate people together. So in this, you know, it seems like in your, when you began thinking about it, the, the ingredients was the first sort of driver to focus on things that were around you. So if yeah. you were talking to, um, to other people who were trying to recreate, like now you have created really a model for how a chef can come into a community and really be, oh. and why are you making that? I'm not sure if I've, if it's a very imperfect, <laughs> so chaotic model. Most <laughs> most of the best models are. So <laughs> <laughs> I study physics, all these chaos comes up a lot. So the, um, but, but you created this idea, at least the idea that there can be an important social connection to yeah. the, the art of cooking and making food um, in a community. And I was wondering how you think that this idea of the local should be playing into how other communities should be thinking about it. Not in a sort of preachy way, but what would you say would be the things you would, if you had to start over? When, when we first started Holly Hill Inn, local food was really only available to fine dining restaurants. In my Early on, one of my, I remember sitting in the dining room at Holly Hill Inn with a guy named Mac Stone, who's, they have um, Elmwood Stock Farm. Mm -hmm. And Mac at that time worked for the Kentucky Department of Agriculture, and his job was to sort of protect Kentucky Proud, protect the brand, move local, local food along, uh, figure out production versus demand, and all those kinds of issues. And... And he said local food was in the prison of fine dining. It was in a, and I'm like, well, you are wow. right. That's true. And so there's one problem with fine dining. It's expensive. Mm -hmm. And local food cannot stay expensive yeah. because it has to be accessible to large groups of people if it's going to be sustainable from an mm -hmm. economic point of view and also uh, from a social justice point of view. Mm -hmm. We need to be able to make good food available to large groups of people at an affordable price. That said, we do need to re-educate people about what good food is and how much it should cost. Dollar menus are not good food. They're inexpensive and they play a role because if you've only got a dollar, hell yeah, buy the burger, you know, and that's it. And then that's all you can afford to, to eat and you've got to get something right mm -hmm. now. But I think our mission is to teach people about food and reconnect them to the process mm -hmm. of growing food and preparing their own food and so that they can sustain themselves, but also cooking for others is the best way that I know that you can mm -hmm. express love and concern for that other person yeah. and for your family. And sometimes... I really love to receive that kind of yeah, love. Yeah, <laughs> me too. <laughs> that kind of love. People are always saying, oh, I could never invite you over for dinner. And I'm like, why not? You know, I'm the, a great dinner guest. This is sort of a complete topic. <laughs> but one of the questions I actually had, it just would not go away, was that I said, I want to ask her if when she goes to the grocery store, does she take a list or does she just go in and say, I'm Weeda Michael. 
I'm a James Beard nominee. I don't need no lists. I'll just make, like, like Chopped. Um, my kid is obsessed with Chopped Tournament of Stars, which he calls actually Chomped. Chomped Tournament of Stars. I love, that, sh I love yeah. that show. So, I, I'm thinking about so going like, on do, that show. Do you, you should. I, so, I could kick butt on that really, show. But really, really, do you think about your own that. sort of, you know, it's one thing to talk about the sort of restaurants, but do you think about yeah. the sort of, as you are making the food in the restaurant, are you also thinking about the kind of more intimate project of food in the home and how you might be influencing people's I never thought about cooking at home as an adult until my daughter came into my life. Um, pretty much my husband and I ate frozen pizza after work. <laughs> that is awful. And, um, but, yeah, I know. Um, but also very empowering to the rest of us. I'm like. <laughs> For the first, my, my, my dad, Ray, is here in the front row. He will attest to the fact that my daughter, Willa, ate nothing but ramen noodles for like three solid years. <laughs> it just broke my heart. I couldn't get the kid to eat a flipping thing. And then, um, so I've worked hard on that. Yeah. And, but no, when I'm shopping at Kroger, I am... I, complete, I have a different style of cooking at home, and yeah. it's actually really based on what I grew up eating. Mm -hmm. And I'm lucky my mother was a fantastic cook, and my dad also killer cook. You know, fried chicken. Nice. Yeah, nice. Oh, I saw the Wendy like, Corner now has oh. a fried chicken dinner on Mondays. Yes. <laughs> That's yeah. not an ad. I really just was looking this up <laughs> <laughs> the other day, and I was like, Mondays. Oh, we got a good chicken, too. We got yeah. this new Freebird chicken that I like. It's uh -huh. all healthy for you and stuff. So. Yeah. <laughs> So how do you think about, um, but talk to us a little bit more about the ways in which you're thinking about. So I wrote you and said that one of the questions I might, I wanted to ask you was, what are some of your like hopes? I mean, that's sort of a very broad question. And I'm not one of those people who are into what a, a political scientist friend of mine calls hope mongering. Uh, that we have, you know, that Barack Obama sort of, you know, it was great and it was wonderful listening to him, but it's ushered in a kind of fetish, fetishizing of hope. Right, so not oh, in that yeah, kind of that. way, but like, what are some of the like concrete wishes you have for our community, like connected to food and maybe beyond that as you're thinking about how your career is turning? Wow. Um, well, I did, it became more important to me in the last five years, and maybe that's just a, it's just getting older it became so important to me to be cooking here in Kentucky and um, cooking the food of Kentucky, uh, not just the, you know, mm -hmm. not just the old Kentucky grits recipes and corn pudding and that stuff, although I love it, but really... Um, There's more than just cheese grits? Yeah. Oh. Well, but, 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 but really thinking about what local agriculture yeah. is producing, that's Kentucky food. That is. And making Thai food out of Kentucky ingredients <laughs> is Kentucky food. Yeah. And that's part of what I'm trying to get people to see is, like, there is a big Kentucky. That we're not all just, you know, old white-haired gentlemen in white suits with black string ties, mm -hmm. you know. And I think that's a big part of what, I mean, and obviously that's a stereotype, but sometimes in the national media that's kind of what you feel like. Mm -hmm. Or even just in Lexington, I just sometimes want to shake Lexington and say, snap out of it! You know, wake up! <laughs> because it's like... I'm pretty sure as your now lawyer friend, that's, that's illegal. <laughs> <laughs> that's a crime. <laughs> Hold on, let me call my attorney. Yeah, and then I'll have to call, like, actual real <laughs> But my hope is that, I mean, my concrete hope my actual really concrete hope is that um, 
I'll be as specific about that, is that Food Chain can raise enough money to put their kitchen in next to Smithtown and then put that market in on the end of that building so that people from all over Lexington uh, at, at all different economic levels can come there and find great food to eat and buy, to mm -hmm. take home to cook and learn about it. That's, that's a very concrete hope I have because I do think that little steps, as long as you're going in the same direction, even the smallest steps in that direction can ripple out and have big impacts. Mm -hmm. And suddenly I, I do think listening to you mm -hmm. uh, and the fact that you even asked me here to, to do this discussion mystified me and listening to it, suddenly you turn around in your life and you're like, oh, that's, that's what you got from what I was doing. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it really goes into the, the, the idea of food as art, right? I mean, you think about the ways in which people put their art into the world, and it, it, it can have repercussions that you would not have, have imagined. And I, yeah. and I wonder if the same thing must be true, like the artist is creating while the public is consuming, and you're sort of in a, by its very nature, consumptive. Now, I think, now what I think of is that business in general mm -hmm. has the ability to do this in our community but that we need different kinds of business leaders mm -hmm. um, and that a diversity of business leaders is good. I'm not saying that all small is good and all bad is, all big is bad. Yeah. I'm just saying that I'm happy to be a different kind of business owner. And maybe the, at, I started by thinking that my art was just on this plate mm -hmm. and now it's grown to like how I design a menu, what does that menu reflect? How can I make it more approachable? You know, and it's, it's never over, by the way, and nothing is ever done. It's mm -hmm. never complete, and it's never finished. And that's something my dad just told me, like, last month, which made me feel much better. Mm -hmm. Because I was standing there looking at the Holly Hill Inn. He needs new gutters, a new roof. You know, it's like, um, and, and that's really true. Um, so now I see my career, I'm trying to teach these younger chefs, I'm trying to imbue them with some of these things that I feel so strongly about, using local food, cooking creatively, but approachably, not stupidly, mm -hmm. you know, like with foams and I, I was just thinking gels. foam. As and, soon as you said stupid, I immediately <laughs> thought foam. <laughs> that was like the first thing I've never <laughs> tasted a good foam, and I don't care. <laughs> I don't care who knows it. I, I don't one like time it. in, in uh, Chicago, I had like a, a citrus foam over something that yeah. was not bad. It was, yeah. It was, it had an interesting impact in yeah. the mouth. No, you can, I'm, I'm being, <laughs> yeah. but still it was shocking. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm so old school and, and I'm trying to actually modernize. Like I had yeah. a young cook at Holly Hill Inn, Tyler, he's been with me for three years and he had, he just wrote the menu last week to express his culinary journey that he's been on with us. Mm -hmm. And he did eight courses and he wanted it real modern. Mm -hmm. And, um, but real modern at the Holly Hill Inn. I got nothing but a stove, baby. I don't even have a deep fryer. It's like one of those Presto have... kettle fryers on the counter. That's what I've got. And there's no... Like literally from Presto. Yeah. Oh. There's no nitrogen. <laughs> there's no vacuum sealer. There's no sous vide cookers. I'm like, yeah, sure. And that, see what you can do. And I was really, 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 really proud of him. And I also felt inspired by the things that he was doing. And that made me 
very happy to yeah. see a young cook come back and inspire me like that. It was great. You know, one of the things that <clears throat> I think is uh, sort of interesting what you just said is because it's really, um, it's almost like you're, you're becoming the master teacher to some degree. I mean, that w what you defined is exactly what happens when you become a person who um, understands their craft so well that they can be then articulated enough to talk to younger people. And, you know, so it's one thing to talk to chefs, but I want to talk you to talk a little bit about the Midway School Bakery. Uh, because as soon as you, that idea, like I read about in the paper, I was like, I didn't know you at all. I was like, I love this woman. You know, because <laughs> the, the idea of, um, of children and their connection to food and the, um, the uh, problems, the concerns about obesity and, you know, will our children... Uh, live longer <laughs> than yeah. we will live, you know, all of those things. And I was wondering sort of how you came to that idea and... Um, of the Midway School Bakery. the Midway School Bakery. And, and then also a little bit more about your interest in education generally. The Midway School Bakery, we needed a bakery. Mm -hmm. So we had <laughs> so a baker thought, in every restaurant. Let's put these children to work. Yeah. Just well, <laughs> don't, don't, we don't use children child labor in a bakery. Um, but, we use all people. <laughs> you know, we, we do have a lot of seniors yeah, living in our building. Um, we needed a bakery, but the neat thing about that place mm -hmm. is that was the school for Midway yeah. for, you know, there were school buildings on that site mm -hmm. dating back into the early 1800s, and they kept getting replaced, and the one that's there now is like from the 30s. 30s yeah, yes, 30s. So there are still lots of people who live in Midway who went to that school. And it didn't close until the 90s. So mm -hmm. there are a lot of people of all different kinds of ages. And nothing could seem, nothing seemed to stick in that cafeteria space, which is where the bakery is. Mm -hmm. And our idea would th was that it would become kind of a gathering place for the community to read the paper mm -hmm. and get coffee. And uh, we, want, we also are blessed that it's a, Midway is a town with a mill. Mm -hmm. It's the longest, one of the longest um, continuously operated family-owned businesses, Weiser, Weisenberger Mill, seven mm -hmm. generations. And um, so I, we've always used all their ingredients, but it seemed natural to have a bakery mm -hmm. um, with a mill, and, and the windows were so pretty. They are pretty. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 you know, education, um, it's, it was a deep passion of my stepfather's. My, mm -hmm. my mother and stepfather were very involved in the Pritchard Committee for mm -hmm. Academic Excellence, and my stepfather helped found that committee. And... Uh, so it was a lifelong passion of uh, and study actually for um, him mm -hmm. and um, and for me to and so but I love children. I never thought I did did like children. <laughs> I wasn't sure. Uh, <laughs> but I knew I, I like kids. I didn't like I didn't I didn't think I would like babies. And it turns out that was a pretty awesome part too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's really neat. So yeah. I try to teach as many kids as I can. Um, uh, cooking classes just started that little class at our church in Midway, mainly because I heard this um, NPR story about a surgeon at Stanford who started a knife skills class for mm -hmm. his patients because he felt like there was no way they were going to be able to have a heart healthy diet if they didn't know how to use a chef's knife. Mm -hmm. And so our first classes were all oriented around using yeah. knives, mm -hmm. and kids love knives. Mm -hmm. They um, do. That's true. <laughs> And, and their parents came too, yeah. which was awesome. Yeah. So we sharpened all the knives. We had spotters. Uh -huh. um, and we talked about <laughs> not being afraid of getting cut. You know, that, that uh, hey, getting cut by a knife, there are lots of worse things. As long as you're not coming at your hand from up here, mm -hmm. you know, but if you're kind of controlled motion. 
So you know, I teach torts in the law school. It's like the idea of children <laughs> and, and extra sharp chef knives is going to be a. Hyper, uh, uh, hypothetical for my class in the fall. Actually. <laughs> but it's true that they do love, love, love knives. Love like children do. They love, love tools. Knives. They love tools, and they love yeah. doing anything sort of connected, connected to it. What, what kinds of? Um, so you talked about sort of your the ways in which you have sort of moved around. How does your time in New York City influence your your the ways in which you? think about your connection here. You know, I grew up in Texas, yeah. but I always think of something, there's just a different eye you have on home when you go away yeah. and you come back. And you come back to it, but you are also a little bit different. How does that time influence? Well, I wish everyone could live in New York in their 20s, you know. <laughs> it's a, in Manhattan. Yeah. I mean, I really, I really love New York City. Mm -hmm. um, but New York's a hard place to work. Uh, I think for a lot of different professions. I think lawyers yeah. have it pretty rough in New York yeah, City. So when I got back to Lexington, I felt uh, relief <laughs> in the environment. You could sleep. <laughs> but the one thing I really and and and, and but the one thing that I really missed that you and I talked mm -hmm. about was the diversity of the environment mm -hmm. uh, that I loved in New York. I loved I loved all the different people that I got to work with and meet and the diversity on the street mm -hmm. of people and just being able to, that is one thing that Lexington mm -hmm. lacks that is, would be, I guess, in one of my hope mm -hmm. parts is that we could create a more diverse community here in Lexington. Um, and that I, I missed that. I, yeah. I did miss that. But I did love being back here. It's pastoral. Mm -hmm. it's, everybody's really polite. Yes, that's true. You know, you move slower. <laughs> I was true. able to live, uh -huh. you know, a normal life and be a chef. That's not possible in an urban environment. No, no, no. I don't think so. so and the, the accessibility of Kentucky is also something that's it's got so much accessibility to give to young people. Mm -hmm. To open a restaurant in Manhattan or on Long Island, you know, I just... It'd be a huge multi-million dollar investment. Mm -hmm. There was no way for me to see how to do that. But once I got here, I knew I could navigate. Yeah. I feel that way for a lot of young people coming here. Like this might be something we could use to. Do you still, um, so we work at the University of Kentucky, so I feel like I should ask you a University of Kentucky question. That's not related to basketball uh, in particular, but how do, you, how do you think about your time here at the university? Like if you, um, could sit with you. No. <laughs> but if you were, you know, if you taught a class, for instance, you know, sort of what, what, what kinds of lessons would you want to teach students? Not like necessarily the content, like a history or art professor, but the sort of larger goals and objectives that we try to impart beyond the subject matter. What are some of the things that you think would be useful to students now as a person who is sort of bringing them into the work that you do? Mm -hmm. Well, one of, one of my professors from college is here, Herb Reed, in the back row there. He's dozing off. I'm gonna make him <laughs> no, actually, I learned a lot from him and another professor called, whose name is Ernie Yanner, Ernest oh. Yanarella. Mm -hmm. And at that time, it was in the early 80s, and, um, and in, in the political science department, yeah. we were talking a lot about energy conservation, small, small, small systems versus centralized systems. And that actually really has impact those ideas mm -hmm. impact the way I think about my businesses mm -hmm. to this day it's it's amazing to me that 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 kernel started way back then mm -hmm. I knew from the it, it sort of perpetuated itself and one thing the university did was 
It did. The agricultural college tried to connect small markets to small producers, just in a nuts and bolts thing, mm -hmm. and it sort of drew everything in a circle for me from, yeah. as an undergraduate. But really, I think um, I was so... So you were thinking about food even then? I was. Well, I loved cooking, and mm -hmm. actually I loved eating and, and traveling with the debate team. So we'd go to Boston, we'd go to the Harvard tournament, we'd eat at Star of mm -hmm. India. We'd go to Dartmouth, we had the D'Artagnans. We'd go to, you know, we'd go to Chicago <coughs> to the Northwestern tournament. We always ate great Korean food and then head down to the Greek town and eat great Greek food. Um, so we had this whole, like, food trail. We mm -hmm. called ourselves the best stomachs of debate, you know? <laughs> and uh, these friends of mine are investors, and uh, the Harvard debate coaches are investors at Smithtown uh, Seafood. My, two of my old debate rivals from uh, the debate for Dartmouth are investors in Smithtown Seafood. One of the Harvard debate coaches is an investor in, in Windy Corner, of course, Rogers, and uh, my longtime debate. So I have a strong debate connection. <laughs> and debating teaches you a series of critical thinking skills that that's the number one thing you got to get out of college. And you, you need to be able to speak well, articulate your ideas, and, and think critically so that you can evaluate information. Because there's so much information coming at people all the time. And I don't really think, I think everything else you can kind of learn. You could probably teach yourself, or if you need to learn something specific like physics, mm -hmm. you know, you can go and take a physics class or yeah. something. But it's hard to, that's, that's one thing that I've, I feel like with a lot, I work with so many young people, and what I'm always trying to coach them to do is to say, hey, solve that problem. Yes. Yeah, well, you ever heard don't, the phrase? Don't if you're Google not, it. Yeah. <laughs> Let's move on. Yes. Let's solve that. Let's take action. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Let's move beyond the Google phase. That does kind of concern me, yeah. that whole, like, yes. yeah, you yeah. see that. Oh, we, you know, we teach lawyers who are practitioners. Um, I also have had this discussion with my own physician who teaches uh, students as well. And I remember saying to, I went to, I had an ear infection. I thought I had an ear, I had diagnosed myself from WebMD. <laughs> uh, so I Googled the symptoms. <laughs> and the young resident or whatever, she said, I told the symptoms, she's like, I don't think you have an ear infection. I said, no, but I brought my ears with me. Can you just look at them? So just the idea of like, you know, we're here, my ears and I. <laughs> Could you take a look? But, you know, and in that moment, I thought about, so now with my students just saying, look me in the eye, yeah. put that down, shake their hands, go up. I'm constantly telling them, go up and talk to people. It will get you a lot further in the most. Like, I left a voicemail. And, um, and I have a, a student who got a job. He said he called 250 companies, uh, different places that hired lawyers. You know, we're having one of the worst uh, markets for lawyers right now that we've had since the early 1970s. 250. And he said in every one, he wouldn't stop calling until he got a human being. He said because who knows how they're searching through these keywords when you apply online. But human beings will tell you more information. Yes. And I think that part of that idea, old-fashioned idea of human-to-human -human contact is what I think is so interesting about the approach that you're taking because I think there's a lot of ways that being a chef you could have just said, well, let the food speak for itself. But the kind of work that you're doing also means that you open yourself up to the possibility that there will be friction between the people you hire oh, and Lord. the people who patronize your, your restaurants or that the food may be imperfect in a way that The food people... is always imperfect. <laughs> really? Oh, my God. <laughs> you have to have 
asbestos underwear on every day. <laughs> no, it's about persisting in the yeah. face of imperfection. It's about not, it's about persisting in the face of mass mm -hmm. difficult criticism. It's about learning from feedback. It's about uh, understanding that there, that there is there, the negative, the negative far, far, the negative communication we, we see it more, like mm -hmm. we feel it more than yeah. we do positive. So everybody can say, oh, you're just so great. But oh my God, you got that, you know, cherry stain on your shirt. And then it will just obsess, you'll obsess about it until yeah. you go uh -huh. crazy. Uh -huh. And that's a lesson that I've learned mm -hmm. that I try to stay patient when it's bad um, and persist. Mm -hmm. um, where are we going with that? Oh, for kids in college, mm -hmm. I worry that you know, I had a friend who said that they were, the schools were coming to him for a donation. Um, and he said, and they, they want to know, well, what can we do for you? And he said, never give my child a calculator <laughs> in math class. Hello? Because way. if you don't know how to do yeah. the long division and you can't do the multiplication, and all that's true, that's a very important process that kids need to go through. And the same is true in cooking. Mm -hmm. It's really, really true in cooking. And I think... So no prepackaged food. Well, you know, the thing is, is like food in our culture, in our community, right here in Lexington, has been just all about money. And it is important that businesses are sustainable and profitable mm -hmm. or they can't exist. But at the same time, I remember this turning point in my career, and I'm going to leave all the names out of it. <laughs> I was sitting in this office of a, I was working for a, a restaurant. I'd opened this new restaurant. I was sitting in the, the gentleman's office who owned the restaurant, and he was like, well, to save money, he wanted for me to buy the tartar sauce, but make the Windex, and um, which you can do with vinegar and water, which hell, I'm fine with doing that, that's fine. But I'm like, there is something totally backward about that. I just cannot do that. I can't, I can't, I don't have that in me. It's hard for me to do that. And so much of our calculus in, in restaurant, in, in big restaurant ownership, like, I, I'm sorry, I like Cheesecake Factory fine, but we do not need another 250-seat cheesecake factory in Lexington, Kentucky. I, I mean, I'm saying that to the recorder. And I, I, um, I don't mind that it's there. It's just that it's, those restaurants are not constructed around any other value system except for financial values. Mm -hmm. And restaurants have a unique opportunity in a community to do exactly what you said, put disparate people together in the kitchen where they fight like bloody hell and put different kinds of customers in and out of a space mm -hmm. and introduce them to different kinds of foods local or you know and and but it's incredibly risky and fraught with pitfall after pitfall <laughs> and there are days where i mean mostly what i do is try to teach people to communicate and work together as a team that's that's i spend huge amounts of so my time to do that you're the coach now i'm the coach mm -hmm. and sometimes i have to really coach them hard like old Calipari does you know I gotta tweak a few things <laughs> I wish I knew what the tweak was <laughs> might make it easier push-ups um so something you said a question that I just it just left me but I'll give you a minute to I'll talk my way talk my way through it but um this idea of, of the sort of uh, larger these larger food restaurants and and how they uh, relate to us. What are some of the things? You, what are some of the things you're interested in cooking now? Oh, that I that I that inspire me yes. as just a chef. Yes, yeah. Like, oh, this is the kind of food I I want to make. Or uh, here I, are some of the something I yeah. ate that I said. Yeah. 
Well, you know, I love uh, ethnic foods. I love, I have the sense of when I cook, I love history and mm -hmm. I love travel. And so that's how my food is oriented most of the time. A lot of young young guys cooking the modern way, they're trying to express something personal, but you can't really get to that point unless you have a history with food. Mm -hmm. But to backtrack, so like we did this thing at Holly Hill Inn the last few months where we changed the menu every week. It's incredibly demanding. <laughs> um, but like we cooked Ethiopian food, and I love injera, mm -hmm. and there's no Ethiopian restaurants in Lexington. So a lot of times I gravitate to a, a, a culture that we don't mm -hmm. reflect in our culinary community. and. It was so much fun to read about that, mm -hmm. and it's that's where the internet is great because there's no mm -hmm. Ethiopian cookbooks on the market that I could find that I own in my collection. Mm -hmm. I own a, a, about 4,000 books, but I couldn't find, didn't have one. And Marcus Samuelson's ones got totally polluted and should not, is not a good African example of it, mm -hmm. you know. So it was it was fun to research it and great to cook it. And I feel that way. Tal was my guest chef. Mm -hmm. And her mom was able to come, and so they're, they're from a Thai mm -hmm. heritage. So I got to learn the thing that I took from her. You see on, reflected on the Smithtown menu, which mm -hmm. is that nampla. Mm -hmm. So that's Tao. Oh, she that's taught us favorite. how to make that nampla. <laughs> and, um, you know, that's, yeah, that's my favorite. Mm -hmm. um, so though, I love ethnic cooking. And then I love historic cooking because I feel like when you're walking when, or these specific menus that I do like through Italy or maybe I feel like when you're walking through a dish when you're making a dish it's almost like walking on a civil war battlefield mm -hmm. you are walking in those footsteps so when you're making that gnocchi you are making it the way someone has made it for a century for centuries for four or five hundred years I think about that a lot and that takes the intimidation factor out of those stupid books right because a lot of times people are kind of reading how do you make the braise, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And they're not thinking with themselves, well, this was actually a dish that humans made for centuries. So I can't do that much to it. I'm not going <laughs> to, you know, and it, it's not brain surgery. It's possible to do some things to it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, um, uh, I, I taught, uh, I have a four-year-old, for those of you who are not aware of this, but I taught him how to, well, we make together a pound cake, a seven-up pound cake. Um, and I got the recipe from my aunt, who doesn't like to do recipes. Like, she cooks extremely well, but she cooks everything on, like, 400. And she's like, I don't care. Like, everything is delicious, but it's, everything is cooked on 400. Except, and she was like, if you don't like it, turn it down. And I was like, how can that be a real recipe? And so she, she calls you, like, she, her thing is, you know, she, the way, reason we're making pound cake and not sweet potato pies because she has a recipe for pound cake. And she was like, this is the recipe. This is what you do. But even if you mess that up, it won't be fine. It'll be fine. Just turn it down. <laughs> um, and then, uh, but for sweet potato pie, she says, these are the ingredients, and you put it in the pot. And when it smells like pie, then you put it in the oven and you bake it. And I was like, and I'm in Ann Arbor at this point, and she's in Houston. <laughs> I was like, that is unintelligible, what you just told me. So then I kept trying it, but it is true that it smells like pie. Yeah. And she's like, don't put the egg in. And until, can, it smells yeah, like pie. until it smells like because that way you can taste it. <laughs> so this idea about how yeah. we sort of keep this um, food thing going, I think, is really important, but also that it doesn't become segregated to right. sort of bring us back around in a way that distances people from each culturally other. or by class or by any of those. Any That's of those right. Things. That is true. That's a massive undertaking. Um, but but we can make small steps toward that. Mm -hmm. The most important 
aspect of what you just said right now about the sweet potato pie mm -hmm. is that we have a tendency in this society mm -hmm. to say you have to be, everything requires an expertise, right? Yeah. Well, guess what? Cooking does not require a specific mm -hmm. expertise. People did it, we have done it for our entire existence. You don't mm -hmm. have to be formally trained to be a great cook. Yeah. And, and I get so irritated. That's just a marketing mm -hmm. ploy. One of the things when you uh, did that interview with Ruth Reichel that she said that, that has stuck with me uh, the most is she said that as people started cooking less, the sales of cookbooks went up. Yeah. And like it's like almost like a kind of food pornography where people just read these glossy cook. Do you remember when she said yes, that? Yes, but it's because the cookbook itself. <laughs> Those cookbooks are just, lovely. It was they're great, but but the problem is, no, is that they, they disconnect you from the mm -hmm. process of what's really just a physical process mm -hmm. of jumping in and doing something. Mm -hmm. And do you have a garden? Yes. At home. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you actually go to Kroger? I mean, I asked you that question earlier. I go to Kroger every week, yes. Uh, okay. And I like the, you know, I... I didn't yeah. know you could, like, pilfer from the restaurant I sauce. do that, too. <laughs> <laughs> I like, I, well, I'm lucky I have fresh chicken stock and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Available yes, to you. right. Okay. So I think we should ask the question audience for questions. Any questions? I've got a question to talk about local food. Is there, is there any way we're ever going to see fast food in uh, nationwide range? have some of the qualities that you're talking about, is that Yes. There is a, as we speak, there's a restaurant chain called Darden's Restaurant. They own Olive Garden, Red mm -hmm. Lobster. Um, they're the largest restaurant um, mm -hmm. corporation in the United States. They have a concept called 52, and it's a fine, it's a, it's a nice restaurant concept. I mean, it, it, costs, it costs them about five or six million dollars to build one of those restaurants. A um, red lobster? No, this is called okay. Seasons. It's called it's like a red lobster seasons, costs five million dollars. Uh, probably red lobster probably costs two and a half to three million dollars to build. I mean, that's what I'm saying. These giant restaurant mm -hmm. concepts so are very, you... very difficult to sustain. So you think about how you get a return on a five million dollar restaurant investment, and what your food cost has to be. You know, so we have taken the so most of most food costs and fast food. I'll get. I'll, I'll, I promise you, this comes back around. Are like fifteen percent or under. My food costs are between thirty-six and forty-two percent of every dollar that you spend. I spend on the ingredients for your food, and that's a terrible business model for making a wide profit. But I'm, and I try to bring it down, except that. So that's why some of our prices are higher. You know, at our at our restaurants, they're they're higher because we're using all Kentucky raised beef and stuff like that in the hamburgers. What will happen with local food? You see how fast McDonald's reacted, and this is a positive thing, by the way. I'm not upset about it. They reacted so well to having all the calorie counts on their menus. And when you go to a McDonald's, you see all that, and they've diversified into salads. Local food will be the next organics, and then local. Um, but you'll see a redefinition of what local means. A local McDonald's may not be able to actually, it'll be more regional. So you, what will happen is as these terms get polluted in the marketplace, you'll have to just become more savvy on mm -hmm. what people mean when they say local. What do they mean when they say organic? And, but yes, it will happen. It's, I think Darden's Big Seasons 52 restaurant is the, you know, the first, it'll happen in those kinds of restaurants first, the, the sit-down uh, chain restaurant first, and then it'll start rolling into more counter service. What are they doing in that restaurant? Yeah. So Seasons 52, 
they don't actually buy local produce. <laughs> that's why it's like, that, that's another thing that's it's difficult. But they do change the menu seasonally. And they buy more of a regional, so they have a regional buyer. So like for Whole Foods, for example, Whole Foods goes in mm -hmm. to a market like Lexington. Before they located there, they sent people to Holly Hill Inn and they take them all around and they try to learn what the local market is because they want to bring some of that local stuff in. So Whole Foods has local purchasing, regional purchasing, national purchasing, and international purchasing. So they do it on every level. That's what makes them a strong, interesting company. And you'll start to see that buying happen if you think about that model, it'll come forward into, it may not be McDonald's and Wendy's, but it might be more like Applebee's, Cheesecake Factory, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. The other thing to remember about big restaurants, this is interesting, big restaurant chains get huge kickbacks from commodity groups to place products. So, for example, the American pork producers um, will pay Wendy's all of their R&D which would be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars if they'll put bacon on a burger. Like, what, bur <laughs> what bacon should that be? So they, these, is that why Applewood smoked bacon? Is that that is exactly right. And you know, I did the tastings on those. <laughs> I'm guilty. But I'm like, if you're going to use bacon, use a good bacon. But um, that's a big part of how products get placed on, menu, on fast food menu items. They get all the R&D paid for by these giant commodity groups, cattlemen's, pork producers, egg board, mushroom council. Mushrooms are actually going to play a really big role in how fast food becomes healthier. And this is very interesting because mushrooms have a lot of umami, which is that deliciousness, mm -hmm. fifth taste that you hear some, sometimes you hear about. So you can take ground beef and substitute half of the ground beef with ground mushrooms, and you can get a delicious, delicious. We're going to actually put this on the menu at Smithtown and Windy Corner, we're going to think of a name, we're going to use ground turkey instead of um, ground beef, but you can create a much healthier, better burger at a low price with these mushrooms. And it's, it's going to be a big thing, I think. They're starting to do that now. Other questions? Oh, I got one more. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Where are we going? Are we going to be all GMO someday? Are we going to be all organic? Or what? How's that going? I think food safety issues are going to, just like climate change issues, are going to become more and more important for coming generations. And I don't know which way it'll go. It's not all, neither path is all good or all bad. So I do think having a mix is good. I know a lot of great farmers in our community that don't want to go through the certification process to be organic, but they grow sustainably. And so organic for me is, you know, once Walmart's in the organic market, that's not a bad thing, but it's not a great marketing term for me again. I mean, I'm not so, and also I wonder, I question some of those organic yeah. practices at the larger, again, it's one of scale. So the larger the organic farms, the, you know, yeah. the more difficulty they are to sustain in the environment. So I don't know which path. What I want to try to do is to create as dense a food network in our community, in Lexington, in the bluegrass, in the as much of Kentucky as possible so that we can create great distribution and processing centers in Kentucky that'll strengthen our agricultural economy and also make, make lo local food better and more accessible from a price point to all different kinds of groups. That's, that's really what I want to do. That involves large farming and small farming. That, they'll both have to play a role. Anyone else?
Yes. I read recently that uh, Lexington had created or a council had approved a position as kind of the local food coordinator. Local food coordinator. Dating, you know, dating game. So let's find this producer and match them up with this need. And is that happening on a, like a, a commercial scale? Would you be, would the coordinator be working with someone like you or, and or working with God's Pantry or other nonprofits, movable feast that would be needing yeah. uh, access food? The local food coordinator is a position that just got created by the Lexington Fayette County Urban Government in the Economic Development Department. It's a one-year position, and Louisville has one. Sarah Fitchner fills that post. And the idea is for that person to be a connector. Um, I think they have a huge job ahead, and I'm not exactly sure what they'll tackle first. There is some low-hanging fruit. In other words, there's some ways to immediately match producers to markets. I would be part of that, but I mean, not necessarily me, but the proverbial chef would, could be part of that. But restaurants play a very small role. We, are, we, can drive, we can drive innovation forward, local restaurants, but in terms of our actual purchasing power, you know, UK food service, it took me 10 years. I actually, I'm closer to 1.5 million now in my local food purchasing. It took UK one year to spend a million dollars with local farms. One year. It took me 10. You know, so the key is to, for the local food coordinator to connect institutions like state parks and schools and try to build systems, economic systems, that will be sustained long after that position goes away. You know, so that's kind of that idea. Um, I'm from Washington, D.C., and my family's from New York. And I, I moved to Lexington 20 years ago. I teach language in the UK. Uh, when my family visits, then I always think that community corner. Oh. Um, it's like a place that I take my parents and my sisters to, um, to get a taste of the local food here and um, the beautiful scenery. Um, and so, but, and now that Smithtown is open, that's become my favorite place too. And I've also been to Wallace Station. Um, but when I go to these places, there aren't many African Americans sitting in the restaurant. Right. I see the people um, working in, and cooking, and I love seeing that. But how, how would you? Um, connect your restaurants first of all I'm hoping that like by doing participating in this talk and meeting Melinda and meeting you like I said I have a quest in my own life just to have more black friends actually I'm lucky because church going to church brings that into my life so I'm hoping from that but also I make no mistake about it, the nonprofit that we're, I'm a part of called Food Chain, which is located right behind Smithtown, our goal is to bring a diverse community, being black people into Smithtown, into Food Chain, into the market that we hope to develop there, that intentionally. And maybe I'm hoping that through that work that I can somehow, and just by being open to that uh, to people in, my, in, in all of my communities. I mean, I live in Midway. I work downtown and I work out at Windy Corner, you know, so just being open to all the different diversity in the community that I can, have, that I can encourage more. I only have, I have very few black customers at Holly Hill Inn. Maybe they're from Frankfurt. And, and, and they followed me too from many restaurants I've worked at in Lexington. So I, I have old, I have, they're, they're getting kind of old. 
I don't know how to bring, like, um, and I love them, but it's like, I would like to be able to figure out how to bring young, I mean, I'm always trying to figure out how to bring young people to Holly Hill Inn. The price point is a problem. But that's one reason I have these other more casual restaurants, too. But I agree. I think Windy Corner, we suffer from, you know, there's, an, there's a, Windy Corner is beautiful because it's in the middle of horse country and it's that gorgeous drive. And also at Windy Corner and Wallace Station, the idea is to express Kentucky, really, because of its location, where it is. And sometimes that, that expression of Kentucky can put people out, like it makes them feel excluded. And I wonder sometimes if African-American customers or black customers feel like they're being excluded because of that vision of Kentucky, that they're not part of that. But then again, you know, my friend, I mean, Frida Raglan is the one who taught me how to make biscuits and yeast rolls and chicken croquettes and fried chicken and, you know, cheese grit souffle. And so what I'm, and she's African-American. I learned a lot of those recipes from her, that cornbread, you know, that she literally hit me because I made it with sugar in it or something and she got so... Is, is that a problem? It's so good. It's That's like cake. <laughs> I like sweet cornbread too, but I don't think we want to get into that here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but do you know what I'm saying? Like, I think there might be something about the ethos of Wendy Corner that's discouraged. I hope there's not, but I, I don't know, and I leave it to you to tell me. Um, but that's one thing I've thought of, is that it's just not a culture that, that, that urban black people, young people, feel a part of. So my hope is that they will feel more a part of Smithtown and that I can speak to them there, that they can, you know, feel more a part of that there. Uh, I think Dr. King's trying to move us toward a politics grounded in the language and values of democratic equality. I love the wonderfully practical hopes that you've expressed and that you yourself embody. But uh, it seems to me these imply our need for a new uh, political language and awareness. And diversity is fine as far as it goes. Tokenism is not. Right. We're living in a society that is increasingly plutocratic because wealth and income are going in one direction. We're talking now about the decline of the middle class. Yeah. We're talking about mass incarceration in a prison system that is often privatized and so on and so forth. Yes. So we need a new political vocabulary uh, to, to deal with all of this. Uh, and it seems to me that this is one reason why, for example, there is not outrage when we read in the newspapers that our Secretary of Agriculture, meaning the USDA, recently approved the transporting of chicken carcasses to China for processing and approved the transporting back of the processed chicken. Now, what this means is that the global transport sector, you know, is is a major reason for uh, carbon pollution and yes. for the increasing yeah. problems of climate change. We read in the newspaper that climate change is affecting uh, the food system in California and that food prices yeah. are likely to go up. There's another way in which 
hunger is is yes is increasingly important in, in our society, and yet we don't have a language that is equal to the social justice challenges that many of us feel. So, I I cannot agree with that more. Um, the issue of transportation we didn't even talk about tonight, mm -hmm. but that is a huge issue um, for one I've deep, been deeply interested in for a long time, and, and the globalization of food, and we talk about textiles in terms of, uh, you, know, the, you know, sweatshops and the labor, the, and it's the, those labor issues are the same in food. Yeah. Uh, it's the same food issues, and that's one reason that we, we made a local choice, and we tried to make a local choice in our food consumption. I agree, and that's why, I mean, maybe that's the answer for the University of Kentucky. I, I, I don't know what the answer is, because that's obviously a very complex question. It worries me that the Google thing, the, 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 the little phone and the, the Google thing, that worries me. That's one thing, I have this crusty old sous chef, Lisa Laffer at Holly Hill Inn. She's like, put that damn phone away, or I'm gonna take it away. You know, and it, but the idea is <laughs> to, it's not just about working <laughs> yeah. productivity, it's about, for her, she never takes, she doesn't have a cell phone. It's in her glove box, only one of those ones in case of an emergency. Mm -hmm. That can be a pain in the neck too. But for her, it's just about making sure that all those people that are in our kitchen are actually in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. They're not somewhere else, they're in the kitchen. And I think maybe that's why some of the political discourse, the language has suffered is that our means of communicating with one another has changed and now we've become more passive recipients of information and less and also that what that does is like when you're just a recipient of information like the cookbook issue makes people feel powerless to cook mm -hmm. maybe if you're just a recipient of all that online information about political issues you feel powerless to speak because yeah. you're never talking for pete's sake you're just thumbing the whole time <laughs> right but i spent my teenage years and I think my dad can attest to this, screaming my lungs out in debate rounds, you know, from the time I was 15 till I was 21 years old. Mm -hmm. I debated my ass off 40 hours a week or more all over the country. Mm -hmm. And it did profoundly change me and the way that I think and how I don't care about uh, whether someone agrees with me in terms of friendship. Uh, and I like a hearty disagreement. Mm -hmm. So, sure. um, I teach here on campus in African American Studies and Gender Women Studies, and one of the things that we talk, I teach this semester I'm teaching a class on girlhood, and I actually have a student who should have uh, been here. I'm teaching in within study, and she's doing on sustainability. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about how um, girls are kind of railroaded out of certain things, so leadership yeah. roles, and so one of the things that they thought about immediately was funny that girls cook and men are chefs. Yeah. Um, and so how this kind of plays out in the things that they see. So on Food Network, you have people like Rachel Ray or um, all these kinds of, they're cooks, they're at home, every, everything. Yeah, they're home fashion mm -hmm. things, home. yeah. Um, but when it's a chef, it's like, a, you know, there's this kitchen that's industrial. restaurant, it's industrial, right? And so there's some, some more, a way that they command respect in this um, particular way that these women in the way that they're shown don't. But I was wondering about kind of how your journey, it sounds like what you did was kick ass and debate. And <laughs> Gave me a lot of confidence. <laughs> um, but how, if you see that in the, in the kids that you work with at Midway, if there's like this distinction between them that they kind of 
do now, or what would you recommend to like girls that want or women? They learn so quickly. They what learn what girls do and what boys do. And, yeah. yeah, but you know, you know, one thing that came to mind at the CIA, which is the Culinary Institute of America. This was old school. This was back in. I 19... actually asked her to make that distinction because <laughs> she kept saying the CIA over and over again. This was in the late eight, late eighties, early nineties when I was there, eighty nine, ninety, ninety one, and the, there was this still a lot of old school German and French chefs in the school at that point. And if they didn't like your work, they called you a housewife, and it just made me. It made it just. I just went ballistic. You know, it just drove me crazy. I work great with men, so I don't know that I. But not every kind of a, a man. You know what I'm saying? Like, I will say that I, when I interview people, I think about that. Because I have a lot of women in my company. And if you don't feel comfortable working with a woman as your boss, you're probably not going to be comfortable working in my co company. So I have, to, I have to think about that a lot. In my own personal journey, yeah, you know, everybody has their moments. My moments more with women in my group are don't cry at work. You can't lead from a tearful expression. You cannot lead people forward through process when you're crying. And that's actually, that's funny, but that is, happens I think that a lot. Should, you should give that advice to men as well, in my experience. With men, <laughs> it's more like. I've had it both the same. Open thy mouth and speak. Nobody can figure out what's in your stupid head. Open thy mouth and speak. Tell them what you need. Yeah, that's my conversation with my male cooks all the time. But. I, I, I would be happy to talk to your student, too, and, and she can contact. If she e emails the hollyhillin.com, then they'll, put, they'll send her to my email, and I'll be happy to email her back. But I agree that young girls learn very quickly. And I don't, I'm so cognizant. My daughter's nine, and she's like a crazy dresser, and her hair is sort of tangly sometimes. And I just am like, you be a free spirit, you know? You just... Let your freak flag fly. I don't want you to have to feel like you're one thing or another. You know, just do and be who you are. And I hope that's the language that girls and boys can hear. My dad. <laughs> well, I'd have to come back to the previous question. Kind of, I don't know if this is bastardizing a word or not, but the, the sort of corporatization of food production and food serving in the United States now. <clears throat> this brings to mind really what's happening at UK with uh, uh, a private firm I think is going to take over yeah. the food service mm -hmm. on this campus. And, um, I know of a private company took over the food service at some of the prisons and, and that eventually led to the riot. The riots mm -hmm. and then people getting out. And in, in my view, <clears throat> being a liberal, uh, corporations are money extractors. They, they don't give back much, but they just extract the money. If, if we, and the same thing kind of pertains to the production of crops and the GMO and everything else. Do you have any feeling about how that may in the future impacts local sustainability and local Yeah. Crops? They have to, to figure out their bottom line all the time and go outside to buy the cheapest products they can to make. Right. Money. Well, I think as a, as a community, we have to decide that there's more than one bottom line. And we have that in our business. We have great service, great food, and great financials, right? That's what we try to, to think about. But in terms of the University of Kentucky, the thing that's so disappointing about that food system sale, I, I'm, and I should have spoken out. I'm, part of the problem for me is time. I just, I need to, I need like a, 
my own little radio show <laughs> that I can carry around in my pocket. I was thinking you the should university, do a YouTube channel. Yeah, you? right? Yeah, yeah, how? No, why do you laugh at these things? <laughs> that was a very serious thing. Everyone learns everything from YouTube now. Oh, so God. if you do YouTube, I mean, we can talk about that later. But, but the UK food, UK, it's not, it, what was disappointing about that is it's not just about dollars and cents. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's okay, sure, they're going to put in the, the rent or whatever the contract that they're going to have to buy so many dollars from local purveyors. That'll happen for the first however many months. The question was one of leadership. It's a question of leadership and innovation. And the thing that I, that I was disappointed in was there, there's $50 million in this community. There's plenty of money in this town. There's plenty of money in the state, private money, that could have come up with the funds. If we can put $7 million into a basketball dorm, we can put $50 million into new dining halls that are all dedicated to local agriculture and create sort of this, and it could have been endowed through the UK College of Agriculture, and create a leadership position for the state in terms of diet, nutrition, uh, creative food production. Well, they had a lot business of it in place. That's education. what was so business education and drawing links. And that's what's so hard about an institution like this. It's so difficult to get people to connect to one another. It's really damn hard to get the College of Agriculture to connect to the College mm -hmm. of, you know, uh, Political Science or whatever. I mean, the Gain Center tried, and there have been great strides. And I love the College of Agriculture. But that's what it seemed to me that it was just like, it was easiest to just let. The company come in, build the dining halls, but believe me, they will make a return on that investment. We had the opportunity to create an investment that didn't need a return. It didn't have to have an economic return. The economic return would be the health and welfare of the farms, of the local businesses, and of the students. Well, what about the people who worked in the dining services? That decision was a racist, classist decision because of the staff who worked in dining services. And now they might not have a job, and they're certainly not gonna have the benefits that they had working at the University of Kentucky. Or the stability, I mean, the stability. Impacted our community. Yes. We live in this community, and now we're gonna have more people without health insurance living in our community. That's not the community I wanna live in. Yeah. It had it went across all kinds of spaces, that decision. Sorry, this is the thing that makes me so angry about it. You're right. Because those people are going to lose the best jobs that they could probably get in our community. Yeah, they're, they're great jobs. And I, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens um, with whoever takes over. But I agree, 100%. I agree. I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. I just felt like there was this real yeah i thought that it was a complete just uh, unimaginative attempt at leadership there, there was no leadership there was no leadership there there was it was an unimaginative solution yes um i uh my question is an infrastructure kind of question um for, for instance um i'm a member of the food's co-op and they had their 2020 vision where we all sat down and we said, imagine what a food system looks like. We had different groups, and then they came together. So each group uh, created a picture of what a, a complete food system looked like, and then all the groups got together um, to see elements that were missing in other parts and the like. Um, 
my expectation is that you have a very good sense of the food system, the local food system here. Mm -hmm. So what do you think is today the greatest weakness in the food system, the local food system here? And where do you see the greatest growth in the years that you've been working? The greatest growth is the accessibility. When I first came back to Kentucky, it was in 1993. I worked at Dudley's Restaurant as a line cook there. That was my first job in Lexington. And um, the amount of locally produced foods that are available to me now compared to then is just it's a sea change. And I, I think sometimes it's hard for us to see how much progress we've really made. The biggest gaps in the market are pro processing and distribution. There's uh, especially protein processing, and by that I mean good old-fashioned slaughterhouses. Um, and yeah, Mark's Berry is a great example of how they really did a lot to fill in a gap. And we need a little bit, we need more of that in order to be able to um, uh, fill those holes in the market. And, and, and so I, and, but not just, not just animal slaughtering, but um, uh, co-packing. For, this is a passion of mine. Mm -hmm. So a small co-packing plant that's dedicated to local produce going into jars and cans and uh, so that uh, farmers can bottle and can or businesses mm -hmm. can use local produce in bottles and cans and jars to sell for food, food, for food systems, I think is a big, big deficit for us. But basically, processing and distribution, I think if we could build those, that the production would be able to keep up, but we would have to amp up production. I think there is a sense of local food advocates that we have plenty of production. We don't really have plenty of production, and the question is constantly whether or not the production lags because the demand isn't pushing it forward, or if the demand, or if the... Do you see, or Mike knows what I'm talking, yeah, Mike knows what I'm talking about, or yeah, which, which is coming first. So that was a big problem that Max Stone was constantly talking about when, when I was talking to him at the Kentucky Department of Agriculture is there are those issues that, that they're, they're breaking down. In terms of getting local food into institutions, there have to be some tort issues resolved. So like, for example, um, <coughs> if, always, you know, the, you know, the scallions and chichis, scallions and chichis example, right? Mm -hmm. So. The issue is these big chain restaurants don't want to buy local because the local farmer is not insured enough mm -hmm. against food poisoning mm -hmm. issues. But, but small markets and small producers match very well together. Um, and What's interesting about that, you know, when, uh, so I, I was uh, pregnant during the first swine flu wave and I had read all these books about the flu of 1913 and how pregnant women were particularly vulnerable, so I was consuming a lot of information about the flu. But the, the swine flu, the farm in Mexico, as I remember it, I should always say, this is the lawyer in me, allegedly, <laughs> um, was a farm that had a contract with Smithfield Ham, right? Hmm. So the, the idea that the bigger places are somehow more insulated. Yeah, but they're the ones poisoning. causing all the problems, yeah. right? So the, and that's why I kept telling my mom, if Paula Dean gives me, gives me, <laughs> gives me the flu, then there's going to be heck to pay. Yeah. But there is a way in which, you know, the, the, um, there's one of these TED Talks, and, and the, the, a guy who's a, a, a legal scholar, I think, in Britain, talks about the ways that, you know, we keep trying to transform certain kinds of culture and spaces without thinking about how to transform the regulatory state. And I think that that may be part of it. That's that a big people part. People in the local foods now have to, they're, they're so accustomed to being people on the outside. And the question is, who are, your al who are you allied with who's on the inside? And it's not clear to me in Kentucky who is really that sort of ally. 
to make these kinds of changes. I mean, everyone wants the businesses to grow, but to actually say we will adjust our tort scheme to allow for. The Kentucky Department of Agriculture yeah. does have to lead the way in yeah. that way yeah. through the legislature. And gosh, that's a minefield. Yeah, I can't even. Yeah. So, yeah. What's the ratio in this, this area, I guess Fayette and the five surrounding counties, mm -hmm. that probably are some of your local or regional suppliers? Mm -hmm. What? Um, how much of the farmland that's left is animal and how much is uh, crop-based? Do you have any idea? I don't know the answer to that. I know that the University of Kentucky did a big study, um, at the College of Agriculture did the big study in Fayette County on, on the farm-based economy, um, but I'm not sure how much is divided between livestock and vegetable. I would say it's mainly livestock. The, they say the back end of every horse farm is a cattle ranch. Mm -hmm. You guys know that. The cattle are in the back, mm -hmm. they pay the bills on the front. So the mm -hmm. horses are all pretty in the front and the cattle are in the back. Mm -hmm. and, and we're the third largest cattle producing state uh, this side of the yeah, Mississippi. So we, we have a lot of cattle production and we just don't have any processing. You know, we don't have any, any processing. We ship all that cattle. Yeah, we ship it to Kansas and Missouri and Illinois. And um, that's, that's part of my think thought process with that. But we have more than we've ever had since I've been back in 93. So we have more than we've ever had. So are you more able to, do you, are you able to buy more, I realize the cost is probably higher per pound or whatever on the animal side locally than you are? Uh, Absolutely. The availability of local meat was what made the Windy Corner market was designed specifically to use local meat. When we opened Wallace Station, when we opened Holly Hill Inn, there wasn't local hamburger available like enough local hamburger available to put a, a local burger on the menu. And um, so now we sell hundreds and hundreds of burgers at Wendy, Wallace, and Smithtown. It's all 100% Kentucky raised and processed ground beef. So that's a huge change. I mean, that, that was not available in 93. It wasn't available in 2000 when we opened Holly Hill Inn. Thank you, Marksbury is part of that. It's partly because we've had some really great producers come online strong and make that their big investment. Um, Marksbury, but there are other processors that have, spur that have small processors that have sprung up. In terms of chicken, I can say you could point to 2004 or five. there was a new chicken processing plant that came online in the southern part of the state. So that allowed a whole lot more chicken to go on sale at wholesale at Whole Foods and also mm -hmm. at the co-op and then Wendy Corner could put that pulled chicken poor boy on. Uh, now to get to parts and pieces that's a little bit d different on chicken. But, I, but I, we love to eat boneless chicken breasts. Well it's very difficult as a producer to grow a boneless chicken breast. Uh, <laughs> yeah exactly. That's the old far side cartoon. Um, and, and so those issues are but the pork producer um, we've got some really strong, and of course, hogs are the most efficient animal of all because you can use every, every aspect of them as marketable, and lamb. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, all the meats, almost virtually all the meat at Holly Hill Inn is locally raised. So we're going to take one, final, one last. final question. Yes. Sure. <laughs> it should be you. <laughs> there, there used to be a radio host named Paul Harvey. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and one of his signature lines was, and here's the rest of the story. <laughs> and I think part of the rest of the story that we has relayed or, or you don't know about is she's been associated with food and cooking virtually all of her life. <laughs> and, 
She spent time in Wyoming with her grandmother and mother, and she, she spent time in New Orleans. We would go out crabbing and mm -hmm. catch the crabs and we'd come back and yeah. buy some corn on the commentators and boil the crab <laughs> and have experience all of the New Orleans food. Uh, she lived in Puerto Rico, uh, where uh, her mother and I were very experimental with food, taking, trying everything that you could try locally. Uh, when she was probably 10 or 11 years old, she was giving formal tea parties <laughs> for all of the neighborhood kids organized and dressed. <laughs> um, uh, she spent a, nearly a year in, in Australia uh, experiencing their food and having to cook every other night. As, Father and I cooked her. <laughs> yeah. And when she was growing up in Lexington, <clears throat> as a poor university professor, uh, we never ate out. We, uh, on payday, the closest Friday night to payday, <clears throat> we had what was called Fend for Yourself. <laughs> you take the family out, and the kids could buy what they wanted <laughs> and cook it for themselves, <laughs> but they had to eat it. <laughs> so, uh, and also, she uh, continually grew up. Uh, with this little blue book put together by the junior leaguer of the University Women's Club that was an international book. Oh, yeah. It was the University of Women's Club. <laughs> I still have that book. For every Mother's Day and her Mother's Birthday, we cooked a, an international meal. So yeah. There's some stories there that she hasn't really <laughs> Well, yes. Yeah. A life of food. So Me and MFK Fisher. When, <laughs> one of the things that... Uh, I mentioned to Rita in, in listening to your father, it, re, it reaffirms me your, so the importance. She had a little book, and I said, you know, when you, she said, one day my daughter might be interested in these things. And I said, no, that should go to the University of Kentucky archive <laughs> <laughs> and all of your papers. But I, I just want to say that I, I thank you for coming. I really appreciate it. I could talk to you, you know, forever pretty mm -hmm. much. But I, I think it's what you, the things and the ideas that you are saying are so critically important. Um, to our community, and I, I thank you for for taking the leadership uh, that you have, and, and it makes huh. me sort of personally very proud to live in, in this community, but also good for the the institutions uh, around. And you know, one day that kind of leadership will you know sort of work so the same way that you talk about the sort of local foods making its way. Maybe leadership is something that also needs to come back again from the grassroots up, and so. Um, and you'll be a part of that. So let's Thank give you. her a round of applause. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening. And thanks to the College of Arts and Sciences and the African American and Africana Studies Department for making this podcast possible.